I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles on the sh- shelf uh, in the back there, and you can grab one if you think it would be helpful uh, to follow along with that. But we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 4. And we've been looking at the book of Daniel, uh, which follows uh, the 6th century Jewish prophet, Daniel. Uh, and uh, as we've looked at the first three chapters of the book, we've seen this overarching uh, theme uh, that the Lord God of Israel is sovereign, that he's in control, and he is exercising his power, applying his power for the protection and defense of his people as they live in a world that is not their own, as they live in a, in a world that is uh, fundamentally opposed to the worship of the one true God, uh, even uh, sometimes violently so. And so uh, we turn now to Daniel chapter 4, which begins with this preface, which will anticipate what's going to happen, these first uh, three verses. So please read along with me. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, and the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men." 
This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens live, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will." And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. 
My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we admit that we are uh, weak and frail creatures, and even as we come to your word, we need your help. Holy Spirit, we need you to give us eyes to see, for even as Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, we we can hear uh, your word many times, we can see your wonderful works, and yet it can have no effect And it will have no effect until you open our eyes and cause our eyes to lift up to heaven and to see you as the living and true God. So Lord, we ask that you would do that work here. You would give us eyes to see you, perhaps even for the first time. You would overcome the weakness of our our minds. You would overcome our, our tiredness and our frailty. And that you would use this word to build up your people and to cause us to rejoice in your wonderful care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, April 2016, Chapman University conducted a survey of 1,500 adults asking a very personal question. What are you afraid of? And do you know what the most commonly held fear was? It was not public speaking, as scary as that might be, or insects. It was not a mass pandemic. It was not climate change, which was a fear held by only 32% of people, or running out of money, 40% of people, or even people we love dying, which came in at sixth place. The most commonly held fear at 60%, 20 percentage points higher than the runner-up, was this, a fear of corrupt government officials. I was surprised to see that. Three-fifths of people reported that they were uh, very afraid or afraid of corruption in government. And if you suppose that was an irregularity, that was the same result that the survey uh, turned in the year before. Similarly, a July 2016 poll conducted by the Associated Press suggested that this fear of government is not uh, confined to either the political left or the political right, but it's indeed a widespread phenomena across this country. 81% of Americans reported to this poll, uh, and this was before the last uh, uh, election, that they were afraid of the election results. And 25% of people said that they were scared regardless of who won the election. What's behind this fear? Well, the sociology professor who uh, conducted the first study I mentioned uh, provided this answer. He said, people often fear that which they cannot control. And we continue to find evidence of this in our top fears. So if in America, 21st century America, people are afraid of these powers beyond their control, how much more do you think the Jewish people in the 6th century, in Daniel's time as we were reading, were tempted to fear earthly powers around them and over them? 
Whether they were living in exile in Babylon or whether they had returned and were living uh, in their homeland again, but surrounded by uh, foreign and hostile nations that were bigger than them, you can imagine their nervousness. And our passage this morning is intended to speak to just that need, to, to those fears. It's to show us that the God of Israel rules over the kingdoms of men and he gives power to whomever he will. God of Israel rules over the kingdom of men and he gives power and prestige and influence to those he will. That's the main conclusion that we're going to draw from this passage and we're going to get there uh, by looking at three points. First, the man. Secondly, the dream. And then third, the change. First, the man. Secondly, the dream. And then the change. First, let's look at the man. That is King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was a great man. He was a mighty man. He had great power. He had shown himself to be a capable commander on the battlefield. He had had a number of successes there. We've already noted in our studies of Daniel that he had uh, laid siege to Jerusalem and he had plundered it of its uh, temple treasures and he had plundered its schools of its most promising students, which is why Daniel is in Babylon. And he had also won a significant victory over Egypt, the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. He had proven quite effective on the battlefield. He was also a very ruthless man. As a, a king of a world empire, he had to quash several uprisings. In 2 Kings 25, we read about one of those attempts, and we're told that as Judah rose up against Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies to Jerusalem. He laid siege to the capital, starving it for one, maybe two years. And when King Zedekiah, the king at the time, attempted to flee, and he was captured, he was brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar, to send a message slaughtered Zedekiah's sons in front of him and then put out his eyes so that the last thing he saw was the murder of his sons. He was a brutal man. He was a powerful man. He was a man of war. He was also a man of great architectural achievement. Babylon, which is located in modern-day Iraq on the Euphrates River, Uh, It was a strategic location, and here Nebuchadnezzar uh, had his capital, and he constructed one of the most magnificent cities the ancient world had ever seen. Babylon was uh, heavily fortified. It was surrounded not just by one wall, but by two walls. The, The inner wall of the city was 20 feet thick which was quite impressive. It was enough for for two lanes of chariot traffic to pass by on. And this uh, double-walled fortification wrapped around the capital so that any traffic into the city had to pass through one of the the gates that Nebuchadnezzar uh, played a role in constructing. And each of these gates were named after one of the gods or goddesses of Babylon. So, for example, if you had uh, come to Babylon in this day, uh, you might pass through the Ishtar Gate named after the god of of love and fertility and war in Babylon, and you would pass through this lavishly decorated uh, gate, and then you would be ushered along this thousand-yard procession way into the heart of the city. All very impressive, nothing like it in the ancient world. When you came down this procession, procession way, there was this great tower 300 feet high, 
with a temple to the god of Marduk, the the creator god in Babylonian uh, mythology, uh, right at the top there. And there was 40-some-odd, maybe more, temples scattered throughout Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar had filled with the spoils he had taken in war. It was, uh, from a worldly perspective, it was an incredible city. Nebuchadnezzar also played a role in constructing uh, these hanging gardens in Babylon, which were considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He built these uh, for his queen. And he built himself a new palace. In 15 days, he built a second palace because a monarch can't just do it with one palace, he needs a second palace. And so he builds this magnificent palace with these high walkways from which he could survey the city. So he wasn't just a ruthless man, he wasn't just a powerful man, uh, but he was a man who had, uh, uh, had great accomplishments. And yet for all his might in battle, for all his brilliance in building, Nebuchadnezzar was a spiritually bankrupt man. Don't mistake what I'm saying. He was certainly religious. All right? We see that by his temples. We see that by the, the magicians he employed. But he didn't know the living and true God. He appreciated Israel's God. He said good things about him. They sounded properly religious. In Daniel chapter 2, uh, he says after his dream is, is revealed from Daniel, it says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And he goes on to, to say other things about him in Daniel chapter 3, uh, acknowledging the Lord's power. He even enacts legislation that anyone who says anything negative about this God of Israel would, would be torn limb from limb. He had heard God speak through his prophet Daniel. He had seen God miraculously deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yet, despite all this, Nebuchadnezzar did not know God. He was, to put it in theological language, he was unconverted. Now, some of you might be thinking this is a very unkind thing to say. And while you're right that we should be cautious in in, uh, making these sorts of judgments, in this case, the proof is found in the words given to us by the Holy Spirit. And I just want to point to a couple things that that show this. First, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God's power with his mouth, but he denies God's power with his actions. We see this in in Daniel chapter 2 when you might remember that multi-material image with the head of gold and and silver and and iron and bronze, uh, how, how he... This image represented the kingdoms of the earth and how Babylon was represented by the head of gold. And and Daniel said uh, that this dream meant that uh, the Babylonian empire would come to an end. Nebuchadnezzar's empire would come to an end. It wouldn't last forever and God would establish an everlasting kingdom. But what is the next thing that that Nebuchadnezzar does? In in Daniel chapter 3, the first thing he does is he builds the statue of all gold. As if to say the dream never happened. As if to say that there would be no kingdom which would succeed his. Or, though he acknowledges after his first dream that God is the revealer of mysteries. He's the one who wisdom comes from. Who does he call first in our passage? He calls the powerless pagan magicians. He's not prepared to seek wisdom from Daniel's God except as a last resort. I also think we see Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual bankruptcy in his worship of these false gods, these temples. 
But we have a clue uh, in our text, which is worth noting. Catch how, what does Nebuchadnezzar address Daniel as? Look at verse 8. Alas, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So rather than calling him by his Hebrew name, he calls him by his Babylonian name, which was a tribute to the god of Marduk, this chief Babylonian god. See, so Nebuchadnezzar still thinks, even though he's seen the power of God, heard the word of God, he still thinks that his gods have some sort of traction, even though they've been shown to be worthless, worthless idols. So here's a man who is powerful, mighty, ruthless, successful, accomplished, but who's spiritually bankrupt. He doesn't know the living and true God. And it's this man who is at ease in his house and prospering in his palace, perhaps kicking back on his zero-gravity chair when a second dream comes. And in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a, a towering tree that reached up to heavens. This great tree at the center of the earth was a source of shade and shelter and food for all the creatures of the earth. And in this dream, an angel, that is a, a watcher as our text refers to it, appears and commands that this tree be chopped down and that its leaves be stripped and that its fruit scattered. And here's what the angel says. He says, leave the stump of its root in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion, notice that the switch of pronouns here that clearly we're not talking about a tree anymore. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him until seven periods of time pass over him. And then we're given the reason for what's going to take place, why the tree falls and this bestial transformation in verse 17. And this is perhaps the most important verse in the chapter. This sentence is to the end that the living may know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, the dream does not seem as mysterious as the dream that Daniel uh, had interpreted in Daniel chapter 2. And this dream comes with a statement of, of purpose, a statement of explanation. And yet Nebuchadnezzar is still not exactly certain about what the dream means. And so he calls for his not-so-wise men. And not surprisingly, these men who have been a recurring picture of ineptitude in the book of Daniel with their hocus-pocus show that they can do nothing to provide clarity. It's only once these men prove how powerless their magic and their gods are that Daniel arrives before the king with some answers. And Daniel, made wise by God, interprets the dream. The towering tree in the dream is Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, which stretched to the ends of the known world. But notice that Daniel does not revel in telling the king this, though he might. But the angel's command meant that a period of insanity would overcome Nebuchadnezzar. He would be driven from civilization, and he would live like an animal for seven periods of time. Now, some have taken this to mean uh, seven months, some have taken it to mean seven years, some have taken it to mean uh, a sort of indefinite but perfect period of time. It doesn't exactly matter. The main point is that Nebuchadnezzar would be driven by madness from his throne until, Daniel says, he comes to know that the Most High God rules. 
Having explained this to the king, Daniel urges the king, he urges him to repent, to turn, to demonstrate his repentance by turning from his wicked ways. And and though Daniel might have uh, had some secret pleasure in the fate that he has announced to the king, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't. He, He urges the king with this godly counsel. He says, turn that you might prosper. Well, Daniel's exhortation still... Uh, uh, to repent still hangs in the air as we fast forward 12 months and skip ahead one verse. We're not told how Nebuchadnezzar responded to Daniel on that day in which he counseled him to turn, but instead we find ourselves suddenly on the rooftop of the palace with King Nebuchadnezzar. And as his eyes looked out across uh, the city, he perhaps saw the great tower in the city center. He perhaps saw the celebrated hanging gardens. He might have seen the temples and thought of all the dedication ceremonies he had been to as a guest of honor. He might have sensed the security as he saw the double walls wrapping around the city. He takes in the most magnificent city in the world. He takes it all in and he says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. Notice, he, he's been given 12 months to repent, and there's no change of heart. I have built this. I have done this for my majesty. In mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis called pride the complete anti-God state of mind, and how apt a description of what we see here in Nebuchadnezzar. For where does the living God come into Nebuchadnezzar's assessment as he looks out upon the city? God is nowhere to be seen. It's I, it's me, it's my. This was a work done by Nebuchadnezzar for Nebuchadnezzar. Pride, we might say, is a self-sufficiency. It is a spirit of, I can do it on my own. I can do it in my strength. And it's a a sense of self-promoting. I will do this so that you'll see how great I am. I will do this so that you see my glory. Lewis goes on to say in that same address, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So as long as Nebuchadnezzar was there on his, on his uh, palace rooftop, looking out and looking down on his kingdom, he would not be able to see the living and true God. He would not be able to know God truly. And as this great king is, is patting himself on the back, even as he is patting himself on the back, this voice comes down from heaven and pronounces this sentence on Nebuchadnezzar that he has been warned about. Madness. Madness. Madness that should last until he comes to know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. And immediately, Nebuchadnezzar begins to descend into this bestial, subhuman state. What a a vivid picture we have here of of God's sovereignty. Proverbs 21.1 says that the, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Well, in this passage, we see the Lord's sovereignty, and we see that the Lord subdues mighty Nebuchadnezzar by turning his heart toward madness, toward insanity. Change is dramatic, and it's immediate, which the text stresses, so that we might see that this is God at work. 
This is the powerful hand of God. The same faculty of reason that permitted Nebuchadnezzar to lead armies and to build up this magnificent city was stripped from him by God's command just like that, in a second. He was reduced to nothing. He was brought to utter ruin so that he might see the impressive things he had done were accomplished using borrowed resources. He could not have done any of it. He could not have done any of it if it weren't for God giving him the ability and sustaining him. And so for seven periods of time, Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, now hairy and savage-like, was forced to roam with the goats and the oxen and the sheep. Until the end of time, uh, or the end of the time, the seven periods that God had appointed. So God applies this rod of affliction, this rod of madness to Nebuchadnezzar until his, perf- uh, his purposes were accomplished. You might say that God was like a surgeon that wields uh, his scalpel and he would not put it down until he had cut out and scraped out uh, of Nebuchadnezzar all the pride, the cancerous pride that had to go. Only then, only once the job was done, would God uh, relieve Nebuchadnezzar of his bestial mind. The purpose of this madness was to demonstrate God's sovereign power. And then to humble Nebuchadnezzar because he sees God's sovereign power. God is the the true king over the kingdoms of men. Even mighty men like King Nebuchadnezzar, even great men like him, they are beneath God's power. God gives them power. God gives them prestige. Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne of magnificent Babylon by God's decree, not by his own might or his own cunning. And by God's appointment, at the end of seven seasons, the king's eyes are opened suddenly to this truth. The king's pride is cast down and his eyes are lifted up. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer looking out, he's no longer looking down, but he looks up at God and he's changed. The change uh, is not only in the return of his reason, but the change is also that he suddenly sees God truly for the first time. Let me point out four quick aspects in which he, uh, of, the, of this spiritual transformation of Nebuchadnezzar. First, he sees God as great. Both in the preface that was attached to this chapter and in these concluding verses, Nebuchadnezzar sees God as being infinitely great. God's kingdom does not end. God is sovereign. He does what he wishes on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Nebuchadnezzar comes to see that the God of Israel rules over the kings of men and he gives it to whoever he will. Whatever Nebuchadnezzar was, he now realizes it is by God's hand. Secondly, he sees that we are small. He acknowledges how small he is, how small we are. All the inhabitants of the earth are are counted as nothing. It's no small coincidence that when Nebuchadnezzar sees God properly for the first time, when he sees him truly, he comes to this realization. This must be true of us as well. When we see God truly, we realize how small we are. We're humbled. We see how empty we are. Third, he sees God is just. Once Nebuchadnezzar sees God's greatness and he acknowledges God's sovereignty, he also acknowledges that whatever God does is just and right. 
Nebuchadnezzar sees that God, uh, when he stripped him of his throne, to strip him of his foolish pride, this was a good thing. It was good that I was afflicted, Nebuchadnezzar might say, that he might learn the ways of God. And fourthly, because of uh, God's greatness and because of our smallness and because of God's justice, Nebuchadnezzar also sees that God is praiseworthy. I I think it's interesting how the chapter begins by Nebuchadnezzar writing this, this report to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in, in all the earth. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it seemed good to Nebuchadnezzar to tell everyone this humiliating story about what happened to him. Why? Because in it, the goodness of God is magnified. That God would strip him of his pride so that he could see and know the God who lives and reigns forever. Here in Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, says Matthew Henry, we see that God in his mercy caused Nebuchadnezzar to lose his mind for a while, that by humbling him, he might save his soul forever. So God humbles Nebuchadnezzar and he mercifully draws him to himself. And God does one more thing. The account of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his his presence in the book of, of Daniel ends with his being restored to his throne and actually receiving even greater glory as he comes to this new realization of who God is. And it's a further indication of, of just the extent of God's power, that he could take this man who was roaming with the beasts, eating the grass of the field, and he could take this lowliest of men and he could bring him back to the throne. It was a symbol. God keeping his word was the sovereign, holy, all-powerful God. So Daniel 4 recounts this dramatic happening in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar so that the people of God might be comforted that it is ultimately their God, our God, who is on the throne. It's the God of Israel that rules over the kingdom of men and gives uh, power according to his will. He doesn't relinquish the, the reins of power, as one commentator put it, to men, whether they be good or wicked, but he remains in complete control even over the most powerful of men, such as King Nebuchadnezzar. For God's people who were hearing uh, this message of Daniel for the first time, this was an incredibly important point for them to hear. Whether they were still in exile and in a hostile world, or whether they had returned to the promised land and were surrounded by these these enemies who sought to do them harm, they needed to hear this message. People who are living as exiles, living in a world not their own, with powers that are out of their control, need to be reminded of this message that God is sovereign. If a poll had been conducted among the people of Judah, I think it was fairly certain that the response that would have come up uh, in terms of their chief fears would have been uh, the great military and political powers of their day because they just had the, the, the power to come in a sweeping army and devastate cities. And that's why Daniel 4 is here. Though Judah was not in control, Judah need not fear because the Lord was in control. In our passage, we see God's sovereignty exercised at the highest levels of worldly power. The most powerful earthly men are held in the palm of God. Even wicked men, such as Nebuchadnezzar was, they are only in power because God has placed them there to accomplish His holy purposes. The throne room of Babylon, just like the White House in Washington, was not outside the jurisdiction of God. 
And it's this message that the church needs to be reminded of here today. We live in a time, as was indicated by those studies, that is, is uh, filled with great fear about how power is used or abused. So we need to be reminded again and again and again that the Lord is sovereign. We need this message uh, from Daniel 4 to inoculate us against the fearfulness of the world that is around us. We're not to, to mimic the fearfulness of, of people who are anxious with every headline. When international tensions run high and the world is gripped by fear at the prospect of a nuclear war with North Korea, the Lord rules. Just as the Lord was sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar, he is equally sovereign over the president of the United States and the leader of North Korea. They are in his hand and under his control. When the church in certain parts of the world is systematically, relentlessly persecuted and Christians are fired and arrested and, and, uh, and killed even, the Lord rules. When the political world at, at home is in a tumult and uncertainty seemingly reigns, no, it's still the Lord who rules. When Supreme Court issues edicts that codify wickedness in the land, the Lord still rules. And it's not just among the highest level of powers that the Lord rules in this world, but it is, of course, true in the everyday business and difficulties of life, the Lord rules there too. He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand. Monday at work, the Lord rules. Tuesday at home, the Lord rules. Wednesday at church, the Lord rules. But the really good reason is not just that the, the Lord rules over the kingdom of men, but it is that He has brought us into His own kingdom. And He did this not by exalting Himself, but He did it by humbling Himself even unto death. Jesus comes and He empties Himself of his glory, humbling himself to the point of death so that he might bring proud and wicked sinners like you and me and even, it appears, Nebuchadnezzar into his kingdom. Rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, he is exalted and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, exercising his kingly rule so that we who are joined to Jesus by faith come under his kingship and he restrains his enemies and ours. And he overcomes them. See, when we see this picture that God is more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it is, should be an encouragement, a great comfort to us because that sovereign power is applied not only for his glory, but it is applied for our good and our protection. Since he is sovereign and since he has shown that he is more powerful than even the greatest world powers like Nebuchadnezzar was, that they're all under his control, it means that in this sovereign king, when we are brought under his reign by faith in Christ Jesus, we are safe forever. The Lord is sovereign. He distributes his power according to his will. And this is good news because he who wields that power is the one who loved us and gave his life for us. We can take great comfort in that. We can put all our confidence in that. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord rules. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise and exalt and extol and honor your name. You are the most high God. You rule over all the earth. 
Even the greatest of men, Lord, are in your hand. And Lord, that is good news. Because being brought in by faith under the kingship of Christ, we know that that power is applied for our good and we need not fear. Lord, when the headlines uh, report great confusion and great fear and the worries of the world, we should be people of great confidence because we know our king is on the throne and his power is applied for our benefit. We thank you for that, Lord. Uh, Give us uh, help to believe it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.